It's time for Security Now. The uh, Explainer-in-Chief, Steve Gibson, is here, and he's going to talk about a big Java exploit that affects not only Windows, but Mac and Linux as well, and give you his take on the Samsung-Apple verdict. He is, after all, a software designer. It's all coming up next on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for security now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash android. Video bandwidth for security now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. It's time for Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 367, recorded August 29th, 2012. What a busy week. Security Now is brought to you by Carbonite Online Backup. Automatic, continuous, unlimited backup for your computer files. Only $59 a year. Try it free at Carbonite.com and use the offer code SECURITYNOW to get two bonus months with purchase. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers your safety and privacy online with this guy right here, our explainer-in-chief, Mr. Steve Gibson of GRC.com, the inventor of uh, a lot of very useful security tools and, of course, the uh, ultimate hard drive maintenance and recovery utility spin, right? Hi, Steve. Hey, Leo. Great to be with you this week. What a week it has been. Well, in fact, we've got so much to talk about uh, just sort of across the board that uh, I was looking at, you know, this is nominally a Q&A week, but I thought, okay, there's just no way we have time to take any of our listeners' questions. So I'm going to push that to next week, and this week we'll just talk about everything that's happened and has been going on. I've uh, found we need to talk about the big Java problems, which uh, people need to be aware of. Uh, there's some new malware that is able to infect virtual machine images, VMware images at rest. That is, when they're not in use, this will go and infect the static file. So it's like, okay, well, <laughs> I guess that was foreseeable, but it now exists. Uh, Dropbox made some news with uh, the addition of two-factor authentication. I've been playing with it and have implemented it, and I'll talk about that. And I found some new... Uh, trust no one cloud storage solutions so and a bunch of all kind of miscellaneous stuff and i want to talk to you a little bit about the apple versus samsung thing i don't have a strong position i mean i'm not screaming in either direction but as a person who's gone through the patent process a number of times and an innovator and developer um i thought it'd be fun to chat with you a little bit on the uh on the consequence of all that i would love to hear that uh, Lots of stuff. Our expert witness, so to speak. <laughs> um, great. Uh, well, I think we can launch right in, actually. Um, we okay. have uh, one commercial. We'll do that uh, before. Uh, well, we'll just figure out a spot. Yeah. Okay. So I got a, a kick out of uh, one, uh, I guess, sort of a hacker code tester person. I can't remember. Uh, his his tweet handle is 0xABAD1DEA. Ooh. As in a bad idea. Uh, anyway, he he coined the term, and our friend Simon Zarafa, who watches a lot of feeds, apparently retweeted it. So I saw it. He called this the Java apocalypse. 
Um, what we have is we have a bad new problem in Java Oy. such that everyone is now being advised to remove it. I love the, uh, who was it, the, uh, the guy in charge of uh, security at F-Protect. Who? Yep. Uh, what was his quote? It was really quite, quite funny. Because um, uh, it's, it's it's Windows, Mac, and Linux. Yes, it's a well, and this is the the mixed blessing of Java. I mean, the whole point of Java is you write it once and you run it anywhere. And so, what happened is that with the with the release of version seven, we we recently went from six to seven and. And 6 is still being updated a little bit for people who haven't moved yet to 7. But two new classes were added to 7. And it turns out that there is a, a very clever way of leveraging some mistakes which were made in 7, which have been around for a while. So no one is sure where this may have been used before, but it suddenly exploded into public awareness over the last couple of days because a well because it's now being used for targeted attacks you know the, it's the typical you browse somewhere with a computer that has oracle's java 7 installed and i'm a little confused about because i keep seeing I, i've seen conflicting reports some have said that you have to have the very latest version version 7 1.7. Some have said that 1.6 is not vulnerable. Other people have said, oh no, all versions of 7 are vulnerable. We do know that, ver that this happened with the move from 6 to 7. So 6 is not vulnerable to this, but it's vulnerable to other things. So no one is recommending people go to an earlier version of Java. Um, I mean, it, it's, it's a mess. It's, so it's, as you said, all three operating systems, Windows, Mac, and Linux. Now, it's interesting. The um, Ubuntu doesn't come normally, for example, with Oracle's Java. They've got their own open JRE, the just, Java Just like runtime. Apple. Just like Apple. And it's not vulnerable. Uh -huh. So if you use the Java that's natively in ubuntu for example you're okay and one of the people exploring this had to remove that then install hmm. the latest version of oracle's java and then was able to make the exploit happen there were some early reports that chrome was not vulnerable but the i mean this has been moving very fast i mean just minute by minute hour by hour um it's already in the metasploit framework. It's already in the black hole rootkit, which is used by bunches of bad guys. So so it's it's completely available. There's a full technical explanation that shows the source code step by step of how this works. There are some security experts who are unhappy with with what they consider to be irresponsible disclosure of this. I mean everyone just kind of went crazy. Some people Early on, we're actually posting links to infected websites, which could have infected people who clicked on those links. So there's been a bit of a frenzy about this um, because it's any browser, any OS. Now, currently, it's 
only carrying Windows malware. But the way this works is interesting too. Leveraging these these two particular methods in two classes, what this essentially allows is the applet to modify its own operating system security settings. So it's not a buffer overflow or anything like that. Um, the, it, it, there's a way for the applet that you, you would download a .jar file when you clicked on a link to went to a website or opened email or something. That would normally, there's, you know, containment of the Java environment within your browser so that it can't arbitrarily do things to your system. So, it, you know, the, the applet doesn't have read, write, and execute per permissions on the operating system file system itself. But what these two methods allow when used together is that the applet to give itself unrestricted permission to read and write and execute code. So when it has that, it then goes out and gets another executable. Um, I think this, in this case, it's called hi, H-I dot E-X-E, um, which it grabs. And at this point, it's a Windows-only exploit. So although the, the vulnerability exists on the other platforms, it's not currently in the wild that people, so as far as people know, have seen it, um, uh, going against Mac and Linux machines, but it's fully capable of doing so. What in, in the Windows case, it overwrites a file in uh, the Windows System 32 directory where you know all the components of Windows are kept, and this is the portable media serial number service that gets overwritten. It's a it's awkwardly named file, mspmsnsv.dll that gets replaced. And at the moment, what it does is it it downloads and installs the Poison Ivy RAT. That, you know, R-A-T is an acronym for Remote Access Trojan. So, so that's what people are being afflicted by who click on links in their browser who have Java enabled and running. So um, once again, this is it's a, essentially a call to disable Java. Now, as we know, Apple has already made the move as a consequence of the catastrophe they recently suffered where so many hundreds of thousands of Mac machines were infected because of Java, where it's disabling it by itself. You have to manually re-enable Java and then if you don't use it for a while, it goes to sleep again and, and, and re-disables itself. Unfortunately, it's really looking like this is the only way we're going to be able to coexist with, with Java. It's a shame because Java is so powerful. It can do many things. There are, there are organizations that are critically dependent upon Java. You know, they've written big chunks of their own stuff in Java because they were convinced that it was a good thing, there is available a patch. Now, the problem is that Oracle has a four-month patch cycle. They only, they only patch, not even quarterly, but, but three times a year, every four months. And so that was um, 
the middle of February, the middle of June, and the middle of October. So here we are approaching the end of August. We've got all of September and half of October. It's October 16th is the official um, next patch cycle for Java. Everybody has been asking Oracle, what's going on? Are we going to get an out-of-cycle patch? Are they going to fix this quick? You know, and so far, silence from Oracle. No, no one that I'm aware of who has asked has received any answer. Um, so uh, this again, you know, we've talked many times about you know, opening up ad remove programs, looking at plugins in your browser. Uh, if you don't know you need Java, it's just it's difficult to justify it uh, in this situation. We don't know how how soon it's going to get fixed. Um, there is a website which basically just checks your version number, but it's isjavaexploitable.com. So you can safely <laughs> go to isjavaexploitable, E-X-P-L-O-I-T-A-B-L-E dot com. Now, I went and it, and because I've got no script running in Firefox, nothing happened. Um, so this is so from Meta, Metasploit, so they're a reliable yeah. company. Yeah, and, and if you enable scripting, then it will use Java to report on its own version number and tell you whether you are vulnerable, not by executing the vulnerability, but by just looking at the version number. Because if you've got 1.7... Um, you know, and then you've been up to date, and unfortunately, that's what I had um, when I enabled it. Then it's like, oh, yep, you are vulnerable. So, uh, our friend Brian Krebs at KrebsOnSecurity.com recently blogged how to unplug Java from the browser. So, if anyone who listens to the podcast is not already clear about going to add remove programs in Windows and removing it, and then looking at your plugin, your browser plugins, and either disabling it or removing it. Uh, Brian does have some nice browser-specific step-by-step instructions uh, uh, at, a, uh, at a recent blog of his. So it's krebsonsecurity.com. So uh, if you're using uh, Ubuntu or using Macintosh, you're probably all right, right? Because uh, you're not well, using... That's a- Good question. Um, what happens, for example, on your Mac? I didn't try it yet on mine. mine I just ran it, and I'm, I have an up-to-date uh, Mountain Lion installation, and it said it's not exploitable. But I always get from Safari the warning before I run, before Java runs anyway. Yes. Which is yes. helpful, because if, if Java suddenly, if you go to a website and it says, I want to run Java, you might want to say no. Yes. Now would be a good time to say no. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, now... The, the, I've, I've, I've listened to quotes from hackers, read quotes from hackers, and they're just jumping up and down because they're, they feel like they have a six-week window. <laughs> Woohoo! Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's not often that you get a completely cross-platform, wide-open exploit, which is able – and what this will do, let me just make it clear, it will – not just download a Windows exploit. I mean, all it is is, I mean, if you, you could easily have a multi-platform exploit. It will download anything and run anything on any system. It has that capability. Essentially, it completely unchains 
a programming language, Java, from any security constraints, allowing it to do it like, like an app running on your machine with you doing nothing but visiting a website if you have no other protections in place. So you can imagine this, the script kiddies and the, the hackers are like, oh, you know, boy, here's a create, an opportunity for some creativity. You know, how, how are we going to be able to use this? And, you know, again, within the, within the range of this podcast, people are probably going to be safe. The problem is that not everybody listens to us, Leo, and there's going to be lots of people probably caught out by this. And again, Oracle's not saying when they're going to have any fix for this. Um, the good news is it's, it's not installed for example, in Windows, normally you get it because you have done something in the past that required it, and so you installed it. You know, Windows doesn't come with Same Java. On Macintosh. No, doesn't come yeah. with Mac uh, either. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that certainly lowers the attack service, and that's good. Although for inst, you know, for corporations which are known to be reliant on Java, um, th this is probably going to get uh, applied in strategically targeted attacks. Now, I did want to mention that a patch has been independently developed um, uh, at deependresearch.org. They've got a patch. And if you are not an end user, they're not going to help you. But if you're a, a major corporation that is dependent upon Java for your operations so that it's just not feasible not to use it until Oracle fixes it. You can send email to admin, A-D-M-I-N, at deependresearch.org and explain who you are, what your need is, and they will provide you with a link to a patch. Essentially, it's just it's changing the the problems with these two well now now well understood problems so it's it's trivial to fix um and so everyone's feeling is this is something oracle oracle could jump on immediately and and get to now the other problem is that when i've recommended that people have java look for updates more quickly I have noticed and I've had other people confirm that when Java updates itself, it resets its how often should I check for updates to, I'm thinking it's a month. So the problem is that even when it's been fixed, Java isn't going to be looking more often than a month. So That's really so not it's often not, enough. That's yeah. silly. Yeah, it's not. Now... We are also seeing, and maybe the browsers will step up, we're, we're seeing, as we know, browsers being more proactive about checking for the, the vulnerabilities based on versions of their own plugins. So you could, for example, easily see Mozilla step up to the plate immediately with their you know, evolving on-the-fly patching, just as, as um, Chrome uh, does, and, and, you know, preemptively warn people that they've got a vulnerable version of Java, please fix it as soon as there is an update. So I think we're going to end up talking about this over the next few weeks. This is looking like, unfortunately, because it's so pervasive and, and multi-platform and such a powerful exploit. I mean, there's nothing more that a bad guy wants than to be able to run any program of their choosing 
on any machine that visits, you know, that clicks a link in email or visits a website. Uh, Someone it's, in the it's, chat room said, write once, exploit everywhere. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, true. Yeah, and, you know, I don't know what the future is for Java. I mean, we're seeing JavaScript really take hold. Uh, it's been standardized. It's becoming increasingly powerful. Um, it's not clear that that Java's not going to sort of fall the same way Flash has. It, you know, it was it was necessary for a while, but it's not clear that I mean that you want something that is powerful enough to to do what Java does. It, that is web exploitable. I mean, the the pow, the, the the beauty of JavaScript from a security standpoint is that it doesn't have any file I.O. or or socket level I.O. where it can, you know, do do packet things. I mean, JavaScript was designed to run in a browser environment and be limited. Java is a full-fledged programming language that is constrained in an applet, in a downloadable applet environment, but it is inherently powerful. So what's happened is it's broken free from its constraints in this instance. And so we see the danger of, of having a, a full-fledged programming language that can be invoked from a browser link. It just, I don't know how that's ever going to be a, a, a safe thing to do. So, so it, it seems to me that what we're, we're going to end up evolving towards is, I mean, and Flash has the same problem. Flash is very capable, can do lots of things. The problem is it, it's invocable from a browser. So I think we're going to, in the future, we're going to see JavaScript continue to mature, its speed improve, its, its, its capabilities get fleshed out, yet it will always be, hopefully, constrained so that it's, you know, so that it's safe to run in a browser. And then we really want to move we want to move away from high-use plugins that are general-purpose programming languages. They're, it's just not safe to invoke them th through a browser by clicking on a link anywhere. Yeah, wow. Yeah. So, Unfortunately, um, you know, one of the most popular games in existence, Minecraft, is a Java <laughs> game. So that's on a lot. People, a lot of people have Java for that reason. Uh, Citrix apps well, are also and, Java. And it's not a problem to have it on your machine. It's a problem to invoke it with a browser. Connected to the browser is the mistake. That's the exact. So, so you can keep Java, disable the browser connection. Yeah, I mean, we ha you can also run C programs on your computer and, right, you know, right. VBScript and all these yeah. other things. Yeah. yeah, so it's it's just that it is it is a so, so typically, you know, I mean, when you install Java, it installs its browser right. plugin. The, that's not a good thing. Because it wants to right. offer those services. I mean, unfortunately, you know, it's funny. I saw someone say, you know, three billion uh, machines yes. are vulnerable. Yes, Oracle and, says that. <laughs> <laughs> well, because that's how many copies yeah. of Java are, yeah. are, are, are loose at right. the moment, right. unfortunately. Uh, so yeah. disabled, uh, in fact, you can do this in most browsers. Just uncheck the enable Java box, right? Yes. And there's no reason you probably don't want it in your browser unless you're, I don't know, playing Yahoo games or something. Um, there are, um, I, I, I saw a posting that um, Larry Seltzer had posted in June of 2010. So a little over two years ago. Yeah, he's a, you know, as you, you and I both know him, a great longstanding columnist for PC Mag. Um, and 
he experimented with removing Java, and his comment at the time was that, and this is two years ago, that eh, nothing really much happened. <laughs> nothing broke. And he said the Wall Street Journal was using Java to display some of their financial charts. Yeah. But other than that, eh. You yeah, know, that's because he's he not a gamer. A lot of games. RuneScape runs in the browser and is an MMO that runs in the browser. So, But, you know, and, uh, most and, modern browsers, including Chrome and Safari now, will not run Java automatically, but will say, this program is asking me to run Java. Should I? So just say no unless you're running RuneScape, right? Well, and okay, but here's the problem. We know to right, say no. Right. But, I mean, it's so funny. Um, you know, I love Jenny. But whenever we're when like we're working on her laptop, things pop up and she reaches yes, to yes, just yes. click <laughs> yes, to make yes, it go yes, away. Yes. Just oh it's it's in the way. I yes. go, wait, wait, wait. I, I read these things. Yes. And she says, Oh, okay. Um I mean, but so I mean I don't mean to pick on her, obviously. She's typical. I mean, this is what everyone does. Yeah. Is let's get like rid of what, Java. Yeah, we really Now, have here's to. the interesting thing. Java, when it came out, was really billed as secure, as sandboxed and everything. And I don't understand what went wrong. What went wrong was that it, it's very much like it, it's very much like the firewall model. It, you you have an inherent problem when you have capability that you want to restrict. It's better not to have the capability. Right. And so so, so the problem is we have a, a general-purpose, powerful, state-of-the-art programming language, Java, which can do anything. You can write powerful applications in Java. I mean, full-on, standalone, multi-system applications. However, it's the browser component, the idea that, oh, look, we can also use it for web apps. Well, the second you do that, the second you allow the browser to have access to an to a a a full strength programming language you're asking for trouble so they they solve that by saying oh no no don't worry we're going to put we're going to restrain its security we're going to take away for example its ability to read and write and execute programs on the on the hosting system's file system and everyone says oh well that's good well except it what just happened here was a way around that, where the applet was able to, to give itself permission, uh, which is really not what you want. Right, <laughs> right, right. So, yeah, so it's, you know, it, I, I drew the example of a firewall because, of course, you, you have, if, you have, if, you have, if you have insecure services behind a firewall, then, I mean, this was the history of Windows in the early days. Before there was even a firewall, it was just one problem after another because people would keep finding ways to, to exploit their own, to, to execute their own code um, through buffer overruns on Microsoft's servers because Microsoft had all these services running, you know, in, on consumer machines that had no need for all these services. They were all just exposed to the Internet. Then we got the firewall, but it wasn't turned on by default, so we might as well, as well not have it. And it wasn't until Service Pack 2 of XP that it was on by default. And overnight, the problem was gone. So, still a little worrisome to have the vulnerable services behind the firewall, but, you know, at least we have one. So in this case, I think, you know, the lesson we're learning painfully, slowly, over and over is you we cannot give our browser access 
to a to a full strength, full feature programming environment like Flash and like Java. JavaScript was designed for the browser. The you know, and, and arguably Flash was, although it also runs you know separately. The, those are just too powerful. There's just no good way to do it. <sighs> It was a problem ActiveX had. You know, it's just you don't want a browser running arbitrary code on your computer. ActiveX, same yep. problem. Exactly. Yep. Yep. It was like downloading a DLL and saying, okay, here you go. And, and, <laughs> and we should once again say that the issue with, with Java browser-based applets as opposed to standalone Java applications. I mean, the same yes. thing could happen with a standalone application, but you'd have to download the malicious application directly well, intentionally. And, and you could... You could have Java on your system used for application execution as long as you did not have the browser plugin component present and installed. Now, the problem is that Java tends to aggressively reinstall these things in the same way that it, it turns back its how often should I check for updates back to a month, even if you say, oh, I want you to check nightly. Um, you know, if if you come back after a while, you realize, oh wait, it's gone to a month again. So, so it's it's not behaving itself very well. Um, it's it's you know, I think when the history books are written, Flash will have been a problem. Java in browsers will have been a problem. It it was something we may have needed at the time. Probably never very well advised, but as as you know, no one knew what the internet was going to become, how pervasive, and and how many people who were not computer experts would would be casual users of it. You know, and and people do That's just click on, yeah, they just click on, yes, yes, yeah. okay, fine. Yeah. You know, I want to, you know, get out of my way, whatever you are. <sighs> so, I saw this little note. I uh, got a kick out of it that that Sands, uh, the Sands Security Institute, uh, caught a story. That I wanted to share, just because I keep saying this, um, and but I saw that, but they had in their um, a story that uh, Computer World UK and uh, Yahoo Finance covered. They said an annual survey of eleven thousand public company directors and two thousand general counsels shows that for the first time, data security is now a prime concern for U.S. boards as in, you know, corporate boards of directors. The survey conducted by advisory firms, corporate board member, and FTI consulting shows that over half, 55% in their survey, of general counsels surveyed rate data security as a major concern, while 48% of the directors surveyed felt the same. A similar survey in 08, so four years ago, found that only 25% of directors and 23% of general counsel noted data security as a high area of concern, which reflects a doubling of this concern in four years. Um, and then uh, the president of corporate board member uh, uh, group said about the results, while a number of companies are taking steps to become more educated on IT risks, the fact that the fact is that not enough are taking the appropriate actions to fully prepare their organization. He went on to say, I think it's going to take several well-publicized security breaches before a majority of corporate boards finally embrace the fact that doing business today without a prudent crisis plan in place is a formula for disaster. 
And I had to read that last sentence a couple times. It's like, wait a minute, a crisis plan? How about planning not to have a crisis? <laughs> How about that? <laughs> well, you should do both. You should try not uh, to have one. But you should have a, a response plan, right? I mean, yes, absolutely. And in fact, one of the ways, you know, people or co corporations are getting themselves in trouble these days is when they respond poorly to a problem. You know, how they respond is is as important as, you know, un the unfortunate fact that they're being forced to respond right. to something at all. I'm just I'm amazed, Leo, at the inertia at at like just how slow this is to move forward. But, you know, as I keep saying, it's with all of these widely publicized breaches, these companies are are being embarrassed. And that may be the only way that the IT departments yeah. are able to get the, the money and the staffing that they need. Because, you know, when you talk to the IT guys, they're like, yes, we're jumping up and down. We're t we tell them <laughs> we're begging all the time. them, please. You know, Please, please, please. You know, but instead it's like, well, uh, okay, well, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll talk about that next quarter because uh, right now we have different priorities. So it's like, ah, uh, okay, right. I think the so, decision um, was made at some point by a lot of banks and so forth that they're just going to take a certain amount of loss. You know? Yeah. This is just the cost of doing business. We can't, we can't really, you know, stop it. It's like shoplifting. Well, look, look at the credit card fraud problem. Totally. You know, they totally accept a percentage of, of loss. Precisely. They just go, okay, well, a certain percentage of these charges are going to be fraudulent. So we'll, we'll just bump up the interest right. rates and use that as the excuse, by the way, right. for bumping up the interest Very rates convenient. and <laughs> cover our losses that yeah, way. Exactly. Yeah. So crisis is the name of a new uh, piece of malware for Windows which was discovered last month uh, in July. It's been found to be capable of infecting VMware virtual machines as well as Windows mobile devices and removable USBs. When originally discovered, Crisis was thought to target just Windows and Mac OS users. It has the capability to record Skype conversations, tr capture traffic from instant messaging programs, and track websites visited in Firefox or Safari. Symantec says Crisis, quote, searches for a VMware virtual machine image on the compromised computer, and if it finds an image, it mounts the image, then copies itself into the image by using a VMware player tool. So there's a new first, folks. Wow. You know, how many times have we talked about virtual machines being one, one sort of safe harbor on, uh, you know, a, a means of, of testing viruses and creating some containment and, and, and something that we had some control over. But unfortunately, as they've become increasingly popular... It was probably foreseeable that we would end up with a virus that would mount the image, then infect it, and then dismount it. So that, <laughs> it's brilliant. So that, so that then you fire up your VM where it's thinking, okay, now I've got a brand new, you know, clean thing. And in, in fact, when it wasn't even running behind your back, it got infected mm. with this thing. Mm. Amazing. Um, I noted... Uh, uh, that California legislators, both on both sides of the aisle, overwhelmingly passed 
the Location Privacy Act of 2012. Um, it's a new bill requiring law enforcement agencies to obtain a warrant before collecting any GPS or location yes. data Hallelujah. from cell phones or smartphones. Um, it was co-sponsored by the EFF, our friends at friends of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and the ACLU, the American Civil Liber- Liberties Union. Um, and it's been passed now to uh, our the California Governor Jerry Brown for his hopeful signing into law. He did refuse to sign something last year. It was related. I can't remember what it was now. It was came as a disappointment and a bit of a surprise. Hopefully, this is constrained enough that he's willing to do it. Uh, the EFF has a statement. They said they urge Governor Brown to have California take the lead on this issue and sign SB 1434 because it strikes a sensible balance between keeping the public safe and preserving our privacy. Um, so the ACLU did a study. I'm just pulling this from memory. Um, I think it was 383 agencies across the country, law enforcement agencies. They they did a Freedom of Information Disclosure Act request and and more than 200 were in fact, using warrantless tracking, yeah. um, which at this point can be done. Um, some were applying for warrants, others weren't. And so uh, apparently, as I remember reading this, the fact that some were was taken to mean that everyone could if we asked them to. So um, I know that uh, I saw this story in, uh, also in the SANS security news, and one of their editors um was quoted saying another example of California leading the nation in sensible cybersecurity legislation. You know, I, I, I understand that law enforcement has a hard time with all this technology, but you know, our constitution and, and, and freedoms require that there be a balance. Hey, you know, it's, (laughs) you can get a warrant. Yeah. (laughs) Just get a warrant. I know it's a pain, you know, it's a pain. Get a warrant. So Dropbox has added second factor authentication. This is good. Um, it is good. Yeah. Uh, Dan Wheeler blogged um, two days ago on August 27th. He said, hi, everyone. A few weeks ago, we discussed a number of steps we're taking to add an extra layer of security for Dropbox users. Today, we'd like to announce the launch of two-step verification a feature that will enhance the security of your Dropbox by requiring two levels of authentication, your password and a security code that will either be texted to your mobile phone or generated by a mobile authenticator app available for iOS, Android, BlackBerry, and Windows Phone 7. Okay, so I jumped on this and played with it. I haven't actually been an active Dropbox user, Leo, since you and I stopped using it when we switched to Pogo Plug. Uh, we were using Dropbox for a while, um, and I just—that's right. I made fun. you use it. <laughs> <laughs> what do we use now? Uh, now I just go grab the the uh, the high quality oh, okay. uh, version, and you just work and, from and, that. Okay, and just work from that. So it's easy. Um, Sorry, so, I didn't realize. I, I had kind of lost track of all that. Yeah, it, I no, got it, people it, it's now. Really, you know, 
Well, uh, you well, actually, actually, they are great about getting an edited version to they me. They move fast, um, yeah. W- uh, yeah. Like within hours, and then I'm able to to. So the problem is Elaine is is out in the boonies somewhere with a satellite connection right. and, it, and with bandwidth caps, and so downloading you know 64 meg files <laughs> chokes her. And so if I can bring it down by a quarter of that, it's right. worth right. It, it's worth her while for for me to do that. So I'm happy to. So okay. Um, it is a good thing. What I'm really thinking we're going to see is, is this, I think we're going to see a movement to the, the TOTP, the time-based one-time password. This is the Google authenticator. This is a version of the football that, you know, that we talked about eons ago when PayPal and eBay adopted it. This is the idea that every 30 seconds... The code changes, and it's just it's you, you need to have an, an accurate clock. You need to be synchronized, but you know the internet provides time now. So if there, you, know, you can expect that that you know things know your your phone knows what time of day it is, um, uh, and we know that there are even means for achieving synchronization when it's when there is a, a miss sync. So so that can work. Um, Google Authenticator is, of course, open source and free. This TOTP is based on the uh, is on the OAuth spec, and it's public domain. It's RFC'd. It's a well known algorithm. So all of this is open um, and secure. The idea is that you have a a clock which runs through a crypto. So there is a so this is a keyed sequence of six-digit changing values. And so the idea is the something you want to authenticate with gives you the key. You give the key to this authenticator, and it's then able to generate this, the changing six-digit codes that the site you're wanting to authenticate against expects. So this is nice because the, the, the problem that I had with VeriSign, I loved what VeriSign did with their VIP program, it's that they were the single point of failure. They, you, everybody running through them depended upon them. Well, so that was one problem. If, if they got DDoSed or went down or, or got broken into, then there's that problem. The other is they're very expensive. So you don't see lots of people using them because they charge per authentication. So there's a, you know, it's a, it's a, you know, it's great for them if they can convince people to use them, but boy, it's, it's difficult to use here. What we're seeing instead of, instead of having a single device where you use a single third party service to authenticate, what what Google has done is they're saying we'll do like a multi account authentication. So you, you can add as many of these keys to Google Authenticator as you want. And so I've got one now that's for Dropbox. And it shows me what the six-digit code that Dropbox expects to expects me to be able to provide when I want to log in. Now, I also I haven't messed with Windows Phone 7, but maybe you know this, Leo. They're, they talk about something called Authenticator. Is it just part of Windows? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. But 
Um, I, I don't know. But, That's. Uh, but, I mean, there's Google Authenticator. Maybe there's a Microsoft Authenticator. Well, Maybe now, the chat Google Authenticator knows. is uh, Android, iPhone, and BlackBerry. Right. I, so there's no I, Windows I Phone version of that. So there must be some. Maybe there's. Maybe it is a VeriSign or something. Well, um, probably not uh, because it's going to be open uh, where right, VeriSign right, is not. Right. Um, but what I'm what I'm aiming at here is I I bet you we're we're on the cusp of seeing this time based one time password system built into our devices. I mean, this is it it it's nearly the optimal solution where you're able to you're able to create a code and and you know and this is a one time password it's device based everybody's got a smartphone pretty much um so so the problem with dropbox is it it's a little bit tricky to to get set up they will put up a qr code that you can scan and I snapped it with my uh, with an iPad, and it you know immediately registered. In fact, while the little scanner was open, as soon as it locked into it and focused it, uh, Google Authenticator said, "Okay, I got it," and showed me the six-digit code that Dropbox then was asking for to confirm that I had received it. the The, the problem is, you can't. I was unable to, and I poked at it for a while to ever get it to show that to me again. So. Hmm. And I wasn't able to like say, oh no, show me my QR code for my 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 valid guy. There is an option to get the equivalent twenty six character key, and so um, because what I wanted was I wanted to try this also on my BlackBerry. So I had it on my iPad and my BlackBerry. Now the BlackBerry Google Authenticator is bare bones to say the least. I mean, I don't. It's you know I'm glad to have one, um, but. Uh, it, there's no frills. There's no option to have it snap it with the camera. You have to enter it by hand. And the moment you, the, as soon as you respond to the QR code, then you no longer have the option to get the 26 character uh, TOTP key. So I had to delete it and start over. This time I got the 26 character key. So I could write that down. Now I have that for my Dropbox account so that I'm able to manually provide it to any instances of these TOTP authenticators that I want. So, you know, it, to me, it feels like it's a little bit awkward yet. It'd be nice. If, I mean, it's great that they have it. Um, it, it works. I really think this is going to be the future. It looks to me like this, this is the two-factor authentication technology, which is, which is it costs nothing. It's multi-account inherently. It's standards-based. It's secure. Um, you know, I'm. I bet you we're going to start seeing it built into devices. It's the the right solution. Oh, and one last thing, they do provide. Dropbox does a 16-digit backup code, which they give you as your override. So, so if you if you you know this is something that you write down and you put in the safe or your safety deposit or somewhere because if you can no longer do your two-step verification you know i mean arguably there has to be some solution for convincing them you that you're still you so there's a much more cumbersome yet reasonable super secure because it's you know 16 random digits actually i think it's characters 
can't remember whether mine, I think mine was full alpha. Um, so very, very high entropy code they provide, which allows you to get back in if for some reason you can't do so with your, your one-time uh, password device. So I feel like the UI needs a little bit work, but uh, we now have two-factor authentication for Dropbox. So that's definitely a yay. There, the, I don't know if this is the one Dropbox is recommending. There's a third-party authenticator that works with uh, Google Two steps, so I presume this is what they're talking about for Windows Phone, but it's oh, okay. it's, it's it's from a company called Slug on a Mission. I, you know, <laughs> is there something the the word I have is just authenticator, yeah, as that's if what that's this the is called. Name. But golly, <laughs> yeah, I would rather it were author offered by I don't know somebody besides Slug on a Mission. Um, and then they also mentioned Amazon AWS. MFA, that's probably multi-factor authentication for Android. Mm. So I, although Google Authenticator works for Android, I don't right. know why you'd look any further than that. Right. Right. So, so anyway, the idea is, that, you know, if I, if, the, if I had that football, um, and I still do and I use it, I don't have control of it generally. That is to say, PayPal uses it with VIP, presumably, uh, VeriSign's identity, identity protection and is paying the price to have that kind of, of protection. But it's not generally available. I don't mean like I can't use that for other things unless those services sign up to validate with the same back end. The beauty of this transformation that we have now seen, probably led largely by the presence of the Google Authenticator, is the concept of let's take the time-based one-time password and allow the user to provide the key, and we'll use that cryptographically to generate the code. And we can have the user can have as many accounts as they choose. So there'll be Dropbox, there'll be Google Mail, there'll be you know Amazon, you know S3, whatever. And I think that's probably going to be the solution that the, the the solution that wins for this kind of multi-factor uh, need. So I'm glad for it. I think, well, I think we're going to see. Yes. Everyone should go two-factor. Everyone. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, I got a tweet from James L. McMahon Jr. Uh, that I just, that I wanted to thank him for, uh, showing that re Revision 3 is detecting ad blockers. And um, wh when he went there with his ad blocker on to revision three, it said he got a little note on the screen that said, oops, your ad blocker is on. Revision three content requires ad blocking software to be disabled. Thank you for your support. And hmm. I think that's entirely appropriate, Leo. I, I mean, I think that's, I think that's the right thing to do. You know, we, we've talked about this, the tension, the inherent tension that exists between tracking and and advertising and and all that and i have absolutely no problem with the idea of a site saying wait a minute um you're not accepting some content which we need you to accept in order for us to be able to give you everything else we want to so please accept it good and yeah. i accept it <laughs> Um, uh, we earlier. don't do that, by the way. But uh, nope. I understand why they do that. Look, they got to pay yep. for they got to pay for their uh, bandwidth and stuff. Stuff, yeah, stuff's not free. I wonder if that's a I discovery tweet. thing. 
now that they're owned by Discovery. I wonder if Discovery does. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I tweeted, uh, I'm trying to think, late last week, I think, about something that I have received a lot of tweets about previously. Uh, it's a really nice directory of free online internet courses, uh, Coursera, C-O-U-R-S-E-R-A dot org. Coursera dot org slash courses is a list of all the courses that they have available. And just, I think it was yesterday or maybe Monday, the crypto course, which has run several times, was restarting. So that was Coursera, C-O-U-R-S-E-R-A dot org slash course slash crypto. Um, and I've I got a lot of people who thanked me for the tweet. Um, some signed up. Some said, hey, I did that last cycle and it was really good. What, one guy, in fact, who's a listener, obviously, said, hey, you'll get a kick out of the fact that the MSPPTP, which is what, of course, we talked about as not being secure last week, he said that was used as an example of an insecure protocol in the course. And many people have said that this stuff, this, especially the, the crypto course, is very good. So I just wanted to bring it to our listeners' attention. Coursera, C-O-U-R-S-E-R-A dot org slash courses. It's and, very uh, cool. And, it's very cool. Sure. Yeah, and these are major universities. Yep. I mean, this is, you know, Stanford and Princeton yep. and Columbia and Rutgers and, you know, a bunch of, you know, real players who are doing this. Um, and total miscellaneous. But, you know, I missed the uh, 80th birthday of Legos a couple of weeks ago. Oh, and I, man. And that just, I saw that today. I said, oh, Legos turned 80. Wow. That's very cool. You know, mad, Legos, of course, are a favorite geek uh, toy. And no longer copyrightable or patentable. <gasps> so anybody can make, that, that just happened in the last year or so. No kidding. For a long time, you could not make a Lego uh, compatible block, and now you can. Wow. I wonder how they kept the intellectual property for that for 80 years. <laughs> That's a That's a good, good question. Trip. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I did get a nice short note from a uh, happy SpinRite user, Mark Cole, who wrote back to Sue, who he must have been corresponding with her about something. Oh, apparently about our consultant site li or our, our consultant license. He said, Sue, thank you for your prompt reply and thank you for the explanation. I'm sorry I missed the specific web page you referred me to, but I am so glad you have consultant licenses. I'll work towards purchasing the four copies. Just to pause for a second, the way we do this is, you know, you buy one copy of Spinrite and you can use it on all the machines you yourself personally own. Um, but we've, of course, there's been a demand over the years for people who are computer fixers to be able to use it on all of their clients' machines. And so we said, well, if you keep four copies current, then you're entitled to do that. That seems so. I mean, nobody else has – I just kind of invented that. I like it, though, because it allows someone to try one copy, and then they don't have to, like, ask for a refund for their one in order to get a consultant license or something. I mean, it just it's like, oh, no, just get three more. And I, so I always smile when I hear three yabba dabbas on, uh, you know, <laughs> co co come out of our e-commerce system because that tells me, first of all, that someone tried their one copy 
and it worked and they liked it mm-hmm. and they want and and also that they're um being honest actually yeah. and, i mean really pleased user. so they're yes. they're saying hey you know i'm gonna get three more so that i'm a valid consultant and can use it on all of my friends machines so nice anyway so he said he finished says also i wanted to share that i went to the location where i was working on the pc with the blue screen of death and Spinrite comes to the rescue again it took a couple of reboots after Spinrite did its thing and windows xp followed up with doing its own check disc and the pc is up and running like nothing ever happened the customer is going to be absolutely thrilled when they come in tomorrow morning and their PC will be up and running. Thank you, Mark Cole. Winner, so, Mark, winner. if you're listening, thank you. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. <laughs> I like it. Hey, before we go on, uh, I know there's more to talk about. It's been, as you say, a busy week, but I would like to tell people about uh, disaster planning. You said uh, banks and uh, other financial institutions should plan for the worst. So should humans. Normal people should always have, right, a backup plan, a strategy for disaster. We're not hoping it happens. We're doing our best to keep it from happening. But, you know, hard drives fail. Uh, People are being flooded in Louisiana again. And, of course, a lot of times people have that backup sitting right next to the computer, and it's all lost. We had a call uh, this week from a guy who his laptop went overboard. He had it on a sailboat. And it went overboard between uh, L.A. and Catalina Island. And he said, at first I freaked, and then I realized I had Carbonite, and then everything was okay. Carbonite online backup. Whenever you're online, it's automatically, continuously backing up your data. So if disaster should happen, you just go, ah, I have a copy of that. I don't have to worry. And the best thing about Carbonite, well, there are many best things. One of the best things is it's $59 a year per computer, less than 5 bucks a month for everything on your internal drive, and you it's cloud storage. Uh, and as Steve says, TNO cloud storage. You can use full encryption that only you have the key to. It uses SSL while it's transmitting data, so it's keeping stuff secure. And anytime, you can log on to your Carbonate account from any computer, or they have smartphone apps or, or tablet apps, and, and, and access the data that way. C-A-R-B-O-N-I-T-E dot com. From the Mac or the PC... They have small business accounts and a multiple computer, multiple hard drive accounts as well. But $59 a year for a single computer is a great deal. Cloud storage plus the best backup there is. Carbonite.com. If you, uh, if you decide to try it, use the offer code security now. You'll get it two weeks free, no credit card needed, just security now. And if you do sign up with security now as the offer code, you'll get 14 months for the price of 12 if you decide to buy. That's two free months. Carbonite.com. Offer code security now, and we're so grateful to Carbonite. They support the Security Now show with their advertising. And if you used AdBlocker, okay, but but that's how we pay for the show. And uh, th- and and thank you for allowing me to interrupt, Steve. And now we move on. <laughs> okay, so two good TNO—that is to say, trust no one—cloud storage. Clients or solutions. Hmm. Um, one, and they're very different, but I wanted to bring them to our listeners' attention. I've been playing with them both. And uh, one of them, I think, is going to end up being the official Security Now solution. Um, but I'll tell, talk about that one second. First is ver- a very lightweight little 
almost, I almost want to call it applet or, or utility. It's called Data Locker from AppSense Labs. It's A-P-P-S-E-N-S-E dot com slash labs slash data hyphen locker. And I just tried to Google Data Locker and I can't tell whether it's the same. I don't think that's the one that comes up. Oh, it is the second link on Google. If you just put in data locker, D-A-T-A-L-O-C-K-E-R into Google, the second link is you'll see www.appsense.com slash lab slash data locker. Anyway, this is, um, it's very small. It's one file. It's 1.576 megs. It does require um, that you have .NET version 4. And I'm thinking that it is cross-platform, but I didn't write that down. I think there's a way of running similar apps over on the Mac with some library that you yeah. need to add. Yeah, there's a uh, open source.net. Maybe yeah. that's how you do it. Yeah, I think that's it. Um, and so, okay, so this is, this is minimal, minimal, minimal. Um, you, and I like it because, you know, I like small, lightweight solutions. This is, it's simply a drag and drop target. So you, you drop a file onto it in a little window that it provides and it asks you for a password, which is not recoverable, which it doesn't store, hmm. which is, it just, you, you put the password in and then it, you, by default, it encrypts it adding its own extension to the end and returns it to the same directory that the file was originated from, or you can send it to a different directory of your choice. And so, and there's two tabs, there's encrypt and there's decrypt. And that's all it does. Hmm. But uh, it's, it's cute. Now it's, they're not apparently taking it very seriously. It, It feels to me like it's something they did to draw attention to themselves and here it's working. Um, because they're like all about other things. I wrote to them a couple of days ago and said, hey, this looks very nice, but there's no documentation anywhere about the crypto protocols you're using, the file format or anything. So what can you tell me about that? Silence. Never got a reply from them. <laughs> other people have said they didn't get a reply. You know, and I told them that we have a podcast and lots of people and this might be interesting, but... I don't know. Maybe they're not looking at that email. To me, it feels like it's not um, a mainstream deal for them, but something. I mean, it's so, frankly, simple and easy to do this, but it's cool. It's a little drag and drop, simple encryptor decryptor that you give a a file name to. Um, It doesn't remember the password. Um, I don't know how I feel about that. It might be nicer if if it was sticky. It doesn't remember the directory that you tell it to put things in. So, and it would be nice if that was sticky, you know, so that, for example, you could use it with Dropbox or, or uh, one of those utilities, but um, you know, uh, cloud services. But anyway, it's a cute little, I mean, it, to me, it, I imagine they're using AES 256. I saw, I looked at the encrypted file a little bit and I, there's a little bit of a header that they add to identify themselves. Um, I have no reason to believe that they did anything nefarious, and it is very small and lightweight. So easy, quick and easy drag-and-drop encryption. Now, the one I'm impressed by is called Duplicati, D-U-P-L-I-C-A-T-I dot com. It is over on uh, 
code.google.com. Uh, so open source being run by a couple guys. Um, and I'm, well, let me just tell you what it does. Uh, it is a j- very flexible, general purpose, TNO encryption backup solution that is completely oriented toward cloud usage. Um, it is Windows, Mac, and Linux, so all three major platforms. It can, it has awareness, specific, specific awareness of the Amazon S3 service, Microsoft SkyDrive, Google Drive, Google Docs, um, Rackspace cloud files. It can also just go, it can operate on a file-based basis. Uh, it can talk to WebDAV servers. Um, it understands the Tahoe LAFS, the least authority file system, which is a distributed secure cloud file system. It can also talk to FTP servers and also SFTP, you know, uh, secure FTP using SSH. So very flexible from that standpoint. Um, uh, AES-256 crypto, it is. it will do a full backup of chosen subdirectories and then follow that with incremental backups and you can tell it how long you want it to do incremental backups before it does another full backup so it just doesn't do that forever. Uh, there's a command line tool available also for it for power users, although it's got a nice little UI and um, I'm trying to think how much storage it uses. It's been running on my machine uh, for like a week or two and it looks like it's 45 megs, so it's behaving itself well. Um, uh, it, it has a, uh, there's something in Windows called the Volume Snapshot Service, VSS, which allows backup utilities to perform backups of files that are open. This has traditionally been a problem, for example, with people who just run with Outlook open because the PST, that, that central Outlook database file, um, causes backup problems for, um, for utilities because it's open all the time. So it's able to do, it uses the VSS under Windows or the equivalent of the logical volume manager under Linux. Um, very nice and flexible control over what it backs up. I sent my entire source code tree under my assembly language directory, which of course I don't do casually. I sent it up to Amazon S3. I was able to say I want to back up this entire tree except exclude .exes, .objs, .reses, basically all of the intermediate files other than my include files, my header files, and assembly code files, and so forth. So you're able to say, you know, I want, you know, very accurately specify. It's got a nice sequential process rule-based system that um, that understands regular expressions or simple expressions. Um, internally, they're all regular expressions. So, you, I mean, like really lots of control. So you can say, you know, match on this, then exclude if this, and then include if that, and so forth. Um, and it's not huge. It's a, the entire directory containing. It's got lots of little itty-bitty parts and DLLs and things, uh, but it's about eight, uh, 18 meg 
uh, installed. And again, cross-platform, cross-service, um, um, I'm using it, and I will report back after a while. But I wanted to bring it to everyone's attention. I'm very impressed. It's a, it's a nice little system. The idea would be then that you, you know, everybody's offering free storage now, uh, Dropbox and Google and SkyDrive and so forth. Um, this also allows you to, to have different, different named backups, which you can collect in groups and control how often and when and under what circumstances they are run. And within, so you can have multiple groups with multiple backups. The, the backups can contain multiple folders, subdirectories, and those can have um, the whole rule-based system applied. So, you know, it's very hierarchical and tons of control. And each group can be sent to a different service. So it's not like you have to commit the whole thing to Amazon or to SkyDrive. You can say, okay, I've got a bunch of free space scattered around. I want to send, I want to put these files over on this service and those files over on that service. And this thing just does the whole thing. I'm, uh, it's terrific. Little gizmo. Too bad no Mac so, version of it, unfortunately. But yeah, there is Windows, Mac, and Linux. Oh, yeah, all three platforms. Oh, I, I saw the Windows and Linux using uh, Linux using Mono. I guess if you use uh, Mono on the Mac, you could do it. Uh, then you're ahead of me. I didn't. I did not pursue it beyond. Oh, yeah, I see it. I see it released on. Uh, yeah, yeah. Huh. So d u p l i c a t i dot com cool. duplicati dot com. You, you you have mentioned this before. Did I? I? Yeah, <laughs> I didn't. I guess I didn't drill down into it and and look at it closely. Yeah, I, I think it was in your you know long my big roundup roundup. Uh, okay. But uh, so it was so it's something I I know I've seen this before. Uh, yeah, but I'm still using Arc, which you had recommended on the Mac, which I really like. Yep, and yeah. this is also full TNO, so yeah, like uh, they that. they're doing crypto right. Yep, yep, yep. And this is free. So Leo, yes. Um, uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, Steve. Um, the The patent system is messed up. Yeah, well, um, I agree with that. And and I've been watching and listening to people talking about it for a long time. One of the problems, one of I think the most the clearest problems is that twenty years is a long time to provide protection for things that don't involve, like you know, the 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 building of factories and laboratories and facilities in order to to implement the patent. You know, software moves very quickly, and granting really you know broad rights to a company which largely uses its size in order to to enforce and in some cases intimidate um, is discouraging. Um, I wanted to tell our listeners about a site that the EFF has put together called defendinnovation.org. D-E-F-E-N-D-I-N-N-O-V-A-T-I-O-N.org. Um, they have a petition there and they're collecting um, names and just a little bit of information to, to assure uh, the world that you're legitimate. Um, and I would invite people to go over to defendinnovation.org and take a look around. Um, they break 
their concerns down to seven points. Uh, the first one is that a patent covering software should be shorter. Um, and they're suggesting it's, it's 17 no to 20 years right now. It is. Which exactly. is ridiculous. I think it shouldn't be. They even say five years, but I think maybe five months or a year because cell well, phones move pretty darn fast. Right. And I mean, the as someone who has has experimented and, and played with the patent system, I've 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 written patents and have attorneys and and I've, I've explored this. Um, you know, the there are many problems Right. With the system, one of the problem, I think, the most pervasive problem is that it's often just the company that looks at something first, that basically says, "Oh, well, like Apple did." You know, I mean, I, and I, I, I mean, I'm a iPhone user, iPad user. I love Apple stuff; it's beautiful. But, but the tendency is to get patents on everything. Even if somebody else who was asked, I mean, put in a clean room, had no contact ever, and asked to solve the problem, would just do the same thing. I mean, oftentimes things are obvious. And the obviousness test, I think, is one of the biggest problems we have because, unfortunately, the way our legal system works, we get a jury of 12 people who were selected randomly from the voter rolls and the DMV. And, you know, and is this obvious to them? No, but, but it's obvious to every right. other right. programmer on the planet. But, you know, you didn't get 12 programmers on the jury. So, so they, they say also, um, if the patent is invalid or there's no infringement, and then here's a little bias showing through. They say the trolls should have <laughs> the trolls well, should have to pay the legal they're, fee. They're not talking about Samsung here. They're talking about people like Nathan yes. Mervold who collect patents purely for the point of of either extorting just license fees or or sue, just to litigate. Yeah. Exactly. The problem is it doesn't distinguish between people like Apple and people like patent trolls. So that's the, that's kind of the challenge here is. Apple, I mean, regardless of how you feel about the outcome, uh, Apple acted in good faith in suing them. So oh, absolutely. had they and, lost, I mean, having them pay costs wouldn't necessarily be appropriate. Yes. And, for example, I, I remember smiling when I looked at my – I was playing with my um, Nexus 7 tablet. And when I come to the end of something, it doesn't bounce. Right. It stops. For good reason. That's a patent. Apple, <laughs> Apple has a patent right. on bouncing. Right. Um, and it's like, well, okay. You know, and I mean, so, and I guess, you know, and we've talked about this in various contexts before. I love the fact that I could hold the button down on my BlackBerry and the letter capitalizes. Well, I can't do that on my iPad. It would be nice if I could do it on my iPad. But BlackBerry has that. And so Apple can't offer that. And so, so I mean, they're... There's a problem here in that, in that there's, a, there's certainly a tension between features that would benefit the consumer and competitive features that benefit the companies offering them. And, the, and, and so to your point, Leo, should that be 17 years? No, it's too long. And it's like it's too long. It's crazy. 
Yeah. Yeah. And so it would be really nice if, for example, if hold button capitalization, which BlackBerry came up with first because they had a, a phone with a keyboard on it before Apple ever looked at the situation. And again, it's a matter of who got there, who, who, who had the problem first. But this and is so, kind of the point of Frand. Which is to fair, uh, fair priced licensing should be required, and a lot of companies are uh, agreeable to Frand. Um, yes, and that maybe is what you want to enforce. Which is, yeah, sure, somebody deserves a license fee, but it should be a reasonable license fee. You know, Apple was asking thirty dollars per phone. Whether that's reasonable, I don't know, but it was so much that no no company could afford it. Right. Right. So. Um, and so, you know, uh, on, on, on the issue of trolling, for example, the, the EFF said, shift the court fees away from right. innocent parties. Both the winner and loser in a patent suit almost always pay their own fees and costs, which can total well into the millions of dollars if the case actually goes to trial. Because the potential costs are so high and there is no way to recover those costs – Defendants will often settle yeah. to avoid hefty legal bills, even if they have a strong legal case that they that they never infringed on the patent or the patent was invalid to begin with. Right. So that's um, that's uh, the case in uh, lawsuits in some states. So slap they have a slap law, which means if it's a if it's deemed a frivolous lawsuit, uh, you pay the costs if you lose. Yeah, and 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 again, it's not. I mean, you know, frivolous is. Is a value judgment. Um, I would imagine that most patent suits are regarded as serious suits. So, but 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 anyway. So 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 the point is at this point, the these suits are so expensive that somebody in the right is in tremendous peril and expense if you know if they if they push this. So it it, it is. I mean, it's one of the complaints that I've had generically about the patent system is that because because the patents are complex the the patent office you know the, the theory is that the examiners are i don't know einsteins actually that's a bad example because he was a patent examiner um but yeah. that you know <laughs> that the patent the idea that the patent examiners are like omniscient and actually only issue patents for inventions, but they're not. The patent office is overwhelmed, understaffed, underfunded, and so what happens is patents get granted if it's not obvious that they should not be granted, and they just figure, well, we'll let the courts battle it out. We'll let the courts right. figure it out. And that's well, what happened, I think, with these law the patents. In fact, it's like, well, it looks like a good patent. We'll we'll just make it. We'll prove it. And we'll see right. what happens. Right. I don't think people understand that. That, in fact, it's the, often the courts that are asked to rule. And that's right. inappropriate. The fact that you have a patent means nothing. And, in right. fact, I'm sure you're probably you, – you'll, you'll be able to pull up the number or the, the name of this. But there have been sort of some, some crowdsourced efforts to help with prior art because, because you know, the way the patent system works um, – and this was the instance of – some dialogue that you captured um, at the beginning of the show before we began recording, Leo, where uh, the, the, the bore on the way the Apple versus Samsung suit went. The idea being that that oftentimes there'll be a patent that's been granted for something that that already existed, 
you know, in some corner somewhere, you know, in some university, some grad student published this. But, you know, and it, in completely good faith, the person submitting the patent may have been unaware of that. Um, it, it is the case that the same stuff is independently invented all the time. Sure. Um, I mean, it's the nature of this. I mean, that, and that's one of my, my, my problems with this notion that what the way this really ends up happening is because this concept, you know, the, the definition of what is an invention has been so weakened and watered down that it's just who was at, who was, what engineer was asked to solve the problem first. Now, I, I mean, I love Apple's springy pages and the pinch and, and zoom thing. And it's like, oh, okay, was that an invention? I don't think on you a- can argue that the thing, the patents Apple was suing over were for things that made the iPhone better than other yes. phones. You, you don't need the bounce. The Nexus 7 lives without it. Uh, the tap to zoom is great. Apple invented it. There's no question. Although they did show prior art. It was actually interesting because I, I played this cut before uh, the show began for you. The uh, foreman of the jury in an interview, said he had an insight about one of the patents because he has a patent of his own, so he's an expert. In ah. fact, that's why he was elected to the uh, foreman, I'm sure. His patent, by the way, as far as I could tell, is completely generic and meaningless. I'm surprised that he got past I am. the attorney. I am, too, because he would... that, you know, that's the guy that, they're, that the jury is going to end up looking to. Hey, you have a patent. Yeah. You understand this process. And he... Now, I'm very curious about this because he says... I was really struggling with this particular patent. And I think it was, I think it's the, it's the tap to zoom. I'm not sure, but I'll have to go back and look. But I had an epiphany. I went home and I had an aha moment. Apple's invention wouldn't run on the prior art device that Samsung submitted into evidence, nor would Samsung's code run on Apple's device, different processors. So, it wasn't, he says, he said, he, he used this to determine it wasn't prior art because it didn't run on the same processor. That doesn't make sense. Is that right? No. No, okay. that's a complete misinterpretation of That's what scared art. me. And because yeah, he's the uh, expert, the jury bought it. If Apple had been patenting the particular algorithm code, you know, the algorithm that they used, then that would be one thing. But they're not. They're they were patenting bounciness, right? Just like you know, or or pinchiness. I mean, they were patenting the concept of what do you you know? How can we gently tell the user they reached the end? Now, I got to say, Leo, I like that enough, and I guess I'm like supporting the notion that, that this is valuable to Apple. I like that enough that if I could pay, if I could pay Apple thirty bucks to add the bouncy right. package. To my Nexus 7, I would probably do it. But this was Apple's contention. We made some inventions that made our products better. And Samsung just blatantly copied them so that their products would be as good as ours. But, in fact, we deserve the right to have this uniquely for 17 years. And I, I don't, you know, I mean. 17 that, that's, years. There's Leo, problems. I understand we're gonna that. Be, we're going be, we're, we're to be beaming ourselves up to the. To another planet, right? No, I agree, and that's that's there are, but but Apple was acting with the current state of the law. Oh yeah, I mean, I they're 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 acting in the interest of their shareholders, which they're obligated to do. Right, and I guess my point is that my as a consumer, I can't have 
hold the button down and capitalize it on the iPad. No, that drives me crazy. I have it on the BlackBerry. Right. I can't have bouncy pages on right. my Nexus Seven. Well, I want them, and so <laughs> I agree. You know, you know, and so it, it would be nice, for example, if it were possible to like purchase these accessories. <laughs> Can I license them from Apple? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Let me license them. Yeah. 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 It's a real it's a it's a it's a it's a thorny problem. I think, you know, I signed the petition because I do think we need patent reform. Uh defendinnovation.org. Well, let's yes, let's just revisit this. Right. Let's get some smart people. I mean, and I and you see me, I'm not saying that that was right or wrong. Right. I I love the bouncy pages. I can I understand that that's valuable. I I would argue a little bit about whether somebody else encountering the problem wouldn't have the same solution. Mm. So you know, do you know what I mean? It's the like, obviousness of the patent, just, right? Yes, they just happened to get there first, and, they, and, then, and the patent office is, I think, supposed to consider the obviousness. Oh yeah, the way the actual language is. Anything not, is disqualified for for being considered a, if an invention if it would be obvious to someone trained in the art. Right. That is, if it, if somebody you know, if if software engineer were given the problem or shown this, would it be like obvious or would it be like like Velcro? Oh my God! You know, or a zipper maybe, and, which and I still, still can't figure that out. <laughs> yeah, zipper is not obvious. <laughs> I have no idea how that works. I understand Velcro. Uh, uh, that is why in the Google Oracle case, Oracle lost its case because one of the patents that they were fighting over was a range check. And, and, ev and the judge even said, no, this is obvious. I learned Java and wrote a range check last night. It isn't. It is not a non-obvious thing. So I, the judge, threw it out. Yep. Now there was no jury in that one, and I have a feeling had there been a jury, it might have been a different outcome. Well, I, I, I was like telling you before we began recording, Leo. I for de a couple decades ago, I used to accept uh, uh, assignments or opportunities, whatever you would call it, uh, con consulting, I guess, as a expert witness in trials. And I was involved in several that were intellectual property trials. And when I, you know, when contacted by the attorneys, they'd say, hey, Steve, you know, you wrote a column in InfoWorld where you said the following things and we agree with you and our, our, we have, a, you know, some litigation about that. And so I would understand what it was they were talking about. And if I was on their side, then I would say, OK, I agree with you. So this sounds interesting. Um, the problem was I watched the court system just fumble over and over and over. I mean, you know, essentially reaching what I knew was the wrong conclusion. And I, so finally I said, okay, I'm not doing this anymore. It's just, <laughs> it's just too frustrating. <laughs> well, and, and, and I have to say politics and, uh, and the law and courts are frustrating for normal people. Thank now, goodness the there are people who have longer attention spans than you or I. <laughs> the, new, the news was that it was a one point something billion dollar judgment. Right. Yeah. So, and and I guess that it was willful infringement. Was Which means the judge thing. has the right to triple it because it was deemed willful. Oh, wow. Now, we don't know what she'll do. And, um, you know, I think, that, I think the case can be made, frankly, that 
Samsung, it's pretty clear from the evidence. This is what the real, the really, the jury did rule from the Samsung emails in which they said we have a crisis of design. We got to do something. This iPhone's too good. They, they kind of, there was a smoking they, gun. They copied it. It's pretty obvious that Samsung said we got to copy it. Um, and I think it's reasonable to say that Samsung did a calculation and said, look, the best business would be at this point to copy it, take the chance, pay the fine if if we get fined. The, the, they probably talked to Apple. Apple said we want thirty bucks a phone. Samsung said it, 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 there's not enough money in the phone to give you thirty bucks a phone. Yeah. So we're not going to pay that. We'll just take our chances. And they lost in court. I think you know they made twenty one billion dollars on these phones. They'll pay the billion dollar fine or even a three billion dollar fine and say that was our R and D cost for these phones. And, and now. Take, take, then they'll take the bouncy out of the page. And now what they're doing is they're responding and they're and they're changing and they're innovating. And, you know, you look at the phone that Samsung just announced, which is the Galaxy Note 2. It's not an iPhone. There's no question. It's five and a half inches. So there's no question. <laughs> Nobody's going to look at that and say, oh, yeah, you stole the iPhone. So the, Samsung, I think, probably made a very conscious business decision to infringe. That would be my well, guess. And Samsung is also still the huge major part supplier for Apple for all of these phones. Yeah, that it's they're been, frenemies. It's, it's, been, it's been sued against copying. Yeah. Nobody, no, you know, that, and that business never went away, by the way. I say, at right. no point did Apple say, oh, we're going to go somewhere else. So Yeah, there is nowhere else. Yeah. Well, there are. There's LG. There's other people they could go to. But, okay. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a big, there's a big business here. <laughs> Yeah, so um, I would I would ask people to go uh, consider taking a look at that site, defendinnovation.org. Sign the petition if you think, as we do, that uh, it, this ought to get some attention. That it's it's you know, seventeen to twenty years is a long time for a company to own exclusive rights to something that you know, an engineer said, oh, let's do this. You know, a few years would be a good thing. Yeah. And then or be great if like reasonable licensing terms or, you know, who knows something. It, I mean, it'd be it, uh, I suspect that <laughs> we will. In fact, this has been such a high. I mean, these suits go on all the time and there are many more Motorola's suing Apple. There's plenty more going on. And I suspect yep. this is such a high profile case that these companies are going to, you know, say, look, this is this is a war of attrition. Nobody's going to win. Let's figure this out. Uh, you yeah. know, and it's it's actually over now. This was only a crisis in the first few years of iPhone dominance. I think it's pretty much over. I think there's a you know the two the two have gone their separate ways. No one's going to confuse an Android phone with an iPhone. Nope. It's a good show, Steve. Very interesting stuff. It, it was a busy week. Now we will do the Q and A next week. So we're back on our mod one or mod zero, whatever it is. <laughs> yes, I was thinking. Well, the we have the advantage of skipping back to the original phase that we were in. I guess we, did a, we had a hundred and eighty degree phase shift, and we phased it again. It's so mod two, right? <laughs> it's, yes. it's even numbered shows. Uh, so next week, if you have a question, a comment, or something you'd like to say, and have Steve address it. You can go to grc.com slash feedback. That's where, don't email me, don't email Steve. Just the feedback form is meant for this purpose, grc.com slash feedback. Yeah, I, I, I'm nodding, but no one can see that. Steve so, is uh, nodding. Mm -hmm. Yes, I'm nodding. Mm -hmm. So, yes, go there. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Yeah, nodding doesn't work on audio. Uh, <laughs> we do make audio and video versions available this show. I don't know why you'd watch the video except to see Steve's smiling face uh, and his nods. 
Uh, but you can get both at twit.tv and at slash SN. And, of course, Steve makes the little teeny-weeny 16-kilobit version available on his site, as well as full-text transcripts by a human being, which means they're legible and spelled properly. That's at grc.com, where you also find Boy, and, and I actually forgot to give Elaine credit for the Coursera. That was her uh, pick. She, several people had mentioned it to me, but I just hadn't gotten off the dime to go pursue it. Because I, I would see the tweets come in when I was in the middle of something else. And finally, Elaine said, hey, you know, I was over there. I don't, she, she was the, the thing that made me think about it is that she does all, so much research when she's doing the, the, right. the transcriptions. I mean, she's going out and checking spelling and verifying things. I mean, there's a whole lot of, you know, it's much more than just an automated process for her. And so something that she was doing took her to that site. And she said, hey, I'll bet this would be interesting for Security Now's audience. So Coursera's amazing. You Elaine. Yeah. Yeah. It, I just wish I were a young person again and I had more time. Oh, gosh, I know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Spinrite is also at GRC.com. That's Steve's uh, bread and butter, the uh, world's best hard drive maintenance utility. You must have a copy. You can get it there. Um, also, lots of freebies, including Shields Up and uh, the haste, password haystacks, all that stuff. GRC. Yep. Dot com. We do this show every Wednesday, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on twit.tv. That's 1800 UTC. Now, Steve, just a program note. I think we mentioned this last week. Two weeks from now, supposedly, although the invitations haven't gone up, is we Apple's. We can do a Tuesday, Wednesday swap. Yeah, we might. We don't know, but I suspect we'll want to do a Tuesday, Wednesday swap on uh, episode 369. But cool. we'll, we'll let you, uh, you and everybody else know uh, before we do that. Because of the Apple announcement. And that's supposed to be the iPhone 5, right? That's going to be the new iPhone. Cool. I think I think there seems such a con- consensus that among all the uh, pundits that I think we're pretty much sure that that's what will happen. And September a 7-inch tablet has been pretty much confirmed, too. But not for they... that. Now the consensus is <laughs> that it will be a separate announcement in October. Right. So, I, you know, it's all made up. I like, I like mine at 10 point, whatever it is. That's, to me, I'd like, if I, if I think about the same thing in a smaller one, it's like, eh, I don't know. I'm, I'm excited. I, I love the 7. You have the 7. <laughs> the Nexus 7. And I love that oh, size. I but do, I'm excited beautiful. about the Note 2, which is 5.5 inches. Okay. And I think that that's going to be a perfect in-between because it's a phone and it's a tablet. And a stylus, right? A stylus. And it has a stylus, tablet. and it's actually the stylus that it uses is very sophisticated. It can do some, awesome, some really interesting things. When is that happening? Uh, they didn't say a date, but I think it's uh, generally thought that it will be available in Europe uh, next month. That's I'll order the European version because I always want to be ahead of everybody, and the American carriers will get it in December. Ooh, December. That's a little or late November, for Christmas. Before the end of the year. Ah. Steve Gibson, thank you so much. We'll see you next week on Security Now, my friend. Security now.